Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Nicole, and in a moment we're going to read God's Word together. But first, let's prepare our hearts in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is our joy and our privilege to gather today as your church, as your people, as the family of God, brothers and sisters with each other. And we thank you so much that even though we are exiles on this earth, looking forward to our heavenly kingdom, that we can do so collectively as the body of Christ. And we thank you that you have put us in our church, in the body, to support each other, to look out for each other, to help each other be wise as we submit to each other and submit to your word. And Lord, we pray that as your word is opened up today, that you would soften our hearts and remind us of the riches that we have in you. Help us to be strong and stand with each other, to resist the devil, to resist the evil around us, to proclaim the name of Jesus and your eternal kingdom. We pray in his name. Amen. We're finishing up with our readings through 1 Peter with the final chapter today, chapter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. All right, well, hello again. I didn't ask you guys before, how are you doing today? Good, good to hear, good to hear. Uh, this week, uh, we had here at Living Church uh, the State Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Queensland. That's right, it's every bit as impressive as it sounds, let me tell you. Uh, it's one of those things, right, where 
all the ministers and elders, uh, well, sorry, representatives, uh, all the ministers and for elders from every church uh, in the Presbyterian Church of Queensland come together uh, to do the business of overseeing what's happening in the life of the church on a state level. Uh, we've got elders uh, and our board here at Living Church to look after the local church. We're part of a presbytery uh, that sort of does regional government. And then we have the state assembly. But for any of you who have been uh, in any sort of organization like this, uh, at, at some point, no matter how spiritual and significant the role is, you end up in long meetings that go for 14 hours. Um, and it can seem a little bit mundane. Can, there, there's lots of details, there's lots of things that just sort of have to get done, and it can seem a long way removed for all of us ministers and elders as to why we got into this gig in the first place, to preach the gospel, to see great ministry being done, to, all, all that good, encouraging stuff. But it's actually a little bit akin to the challenge that, that Peter is getting at in this, in this uh, passage here, to, to help us to see that there are deep and spiritual things happening all the time, and we have to have that framework and mindset for understanding uh, the regular workings of what's happening in our lives here in church. And so we're going to think a little bit about these exhortations that he gives to us. There's actually quite a fair bit in here. It's a short passage. It doesn't have the same sort of weight emotionally that the last couple of weeks have had. But there's still some really significant uh, and important things for us. So let's dive in, and I'll let you know a little bit about how we're going to do this. So we've been, again, this is the last chapter of the book that we're looking at uh, as we bring the series to the close. Peter in Rome has been writing to these churches here in Bithynia, Galatia, Asia, this area of modern-day Turkey. And he's worked his way through this idea of the identity of God's people, what it means for them to be a a holy people, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, God's own special possession. He's talking about what it looks like to live uh, live righteously for Christ in a sinful world, but also how to suffer well as Christians, even suffering unjustly at times. And now he's going to give some closing exhortations to the church. So to a certain extent, the, the main ideas that he's want to communicate have Uh, been dealt with, but these closing exhortations still sort of tie a bow on things, that they're connected to what has come beforehand, as we're going to see. And so last week, we looked at this idea of how since Christ suffered in his body, we're to have the same attitude as him, a willingness to suffer. As a result, those who do this don't live for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And so therefore, those who suffer should commit to doing good in this world. We talked about this idea that Christians should expect suffering. That's just part of what the reality of life looks like for those who come to faith. Suffering is going to be a part of our journey. But even while we suffer, we should seek to do good. And so coming off the back of that exhortation, he's now going to uh, do three things. He's going to speak specifically to elders and youngers, and I'll explain what that is in just a moment. Then he's got some general instructions for everyone. And then some final greetings, which we'll just work through briefly. So first up, let's look at his instructions here uh, to the elders and and youngers. So he says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. So he's writing to elders. Now, at this point in the history of the church, the church government, like the way that the church organized itself, was not anywhere near as structured as what it looks like in like the Presbyterian Church today or the Baptist Church today or the Anglican Church today, you know, whichever denomination you want to look at. Everyone's got a constitution these days. Everyone's got sort of these definitions. It's all quite worked out. That wasn't the case in the early church. But what we do see here is this really you know, clearly and defined, distinct role of an elder. 
Okay, we're going to see as we work through here that there's some real clarity about this role was, even if we didn't have like formal constitutions and all that sort of stuff. So Peter is writing as an elder, and he's writing to fellow elders, and he makes an appeal to them, right, which is different from a command. Peter's not afraid of giving commands. He's not afraid of giving exhortations. But here, he appeals to them. And this gives us a little bit of a window into how the early church saw relationships between different people in the church. We see uh, Paul do something really similar in 1 Timothy when he's writing to, to his disciple Timothy, who he's installed as an elder in a church. He says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. There's a sense here in which when you're in church, you might relate differently to people depending on where you stand with them. There's respect to be given to those who are older, those who are like fathers and mothers and that sort of stuff. There's a peer-type relationship with those that are in the same season of life with you, and that can give shape to the way that we relate to the people around us. And here, Peter is appealing to those who are elders. He, he is making an appeal. He, he's putting something before them and asking them to do this. There's an urging element to it. I'm appealing to you. I'm, I'm bringing this request before you, but, it, but it, he's definitely asking something that carries some weight. And he does this as a fellow elder, but also as a witness of Christ's sufferings. Uh, Peter's not just a regular elder. Peter's also an apostle. Okay? He's one of the guys that were an eyewitness to Christ and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. For those of you that are here earlier uh, in the year, we've been working through the Gospel of John for some time. We finished up that series. We've seen Peter be an eyewitness to all those things that John tells us about. He's a major character historically in what happened, and he saw all this. So he's appealing to them as someone who shares the same responsibility as them as an elder, but also as someone who uniquely has seen the sufferings of Christ. But he says that he will also with them share in the glory to be revealed. What's this glory? Well, he's already sort of talked about this a little bit way back in chapter 1, where he says that for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Okay, we keep having this future element in the book of Peter where he's constantly looking forward to the, the revelation of Jesus Christ when he is completely revealed, when he comes back into this world to remake the world. There's a glory that's going to be given to God's people. And so he says to these elders, I write to you as an elder, I write to you as a witness of Christ, and I write to you as one who also is going to be lifted up in glory, the glory that comes when Christ returns. And he's got some instructions for them. So he said, this is who I am. This is how I'm writing to you. But I've got some instructions for you. First and foremost, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. These words are really important because actually, like I said, these are the words that give clarity to our understanding of what an elder is meant to be because we see the same linking of elders, shepherds, and watching over them in at least one other part of Scripture, but when we put it all together a few places, I'll just look at one, okay? But we have this idea here that elders are to shepherd and watch over. And when we go to Acts 20, right, this is Paul, so a different one of the apostles writing. He writes, it says there, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, 
a few verses later, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Okay, I should have highlighted that word as well. Overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Elders, okay, are to be overseers and shepherds. They have responsibility for watching over the flock that God has given to them. And so we see here that elders, overseers, and shepherds are overlapping categories in the New Testament. So when we talk about an elder, we're talking about a pastor. We're talking about a shepherd. We're talking about an overseer. We're talking about one who guards and watches over the flock that's been entrusted to them. So his big exhortation is to these elders, fulfill your responsibility. Be a shepherd and watch over the people of God. And he wants to do it in three distinct ways. He's got three descriptions of what good eldership looks like. As you seek to be a shepherd, as you seek to watch over the flock, do it like this. He says, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Elders, those who serve the church by being overseers or pastors, are to be those who do so willingly, not out of some sort of sense of obligation, not as a burdensome task, but willingly. It's something that they give themselves to in accordance with what God has called them to be, what God wants you to be. That's the first one. Second one is not pursuing dishonest gain, but being eager to serve. In context, just looking at the words here, I won't go there for time's sake, but it seems to be a reference to financial gain. Some sort of sense here in which some leaders, some people in positions of authority, use that authority in a bad way, and they attempt to gain for themselves financially through this. But that's not what you are to be doing at all. Rather, you were to seek to serve. You should not be interested in your own gain in this position of privilege that you have, but rather seek to serve others. And then he says to them, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, for those of you that are familiar with your Bibles, that probably rings some familiar bells because it sounds like something that Jesus said, and indeed it is, in a couple of different places, but here it is from Matthew, where Jesus called his disciples together and said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, lord it over them, And their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. You're not to lord your authority over them. That's what Jesus taught the disciples. That's what Jesus taught Peter. Peter was right there. Peter heard Jesus say, don't use your authority to lord it over people, but rather serve them. And so here he says now, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Peter's third description of what good eldership looks like is to say, you're not to be in the place of Jesus, you're not the Lord, but you are to be an example of him. Now, in those same passages where Jesus speaks about not lording it over others, Jesus talks about how the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. When Peter here talks about leaders who are not lording it over those they have responsibility for, but rather serving them and following the example of Jesus. He's talking about sacrificially giving in order to love and serve those that have been entrusted to them. And that's a really important part there. It says, not lording it over those entrusted to you. 
An elder in a local church doesn't have responsibility for all Christians, but rather there's a sense that when you've been placed as an elder in a position of responsibility in a local church, you do have responsibility for those who have been entrusted to you. There's this sort of stewardship idea. People have been put into your care, and you are to fulfill that responsibility as you've been given in that place. And perhaps to emphasize that last point about not lording it over others, Peter then goes on to say, and when the chief shepherd appears, almost like a little reminder to the elders, these shepherds are under shepherds. You're not the great shepherd. You're not lording it over. You may very well be a shepherd, but Jesus himself spoke about the fact that he is the good shepherd. We've seen it elsewhere in Scripture as well. So in Acts there, it also says, For you, like sheep, had gone astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This picture of God or Jesus as the shepherd is a strong one in Scripture. And we shouldn't forget that when we have elders, that while they may be shepherds, they're not the chief shepherd. And so he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Again, that reference back Okay, that he's referenced already at the start of this chapter, back in chapter 1 as well, but that continuous forward-looking to the glory that is to come. I hope you've noticed this as we've worked through the letter. Peter never stops looking forward. And it's an encouragement to all Christians to keep looking forward to the reality of Jesus Christ returning that is to come. All right, then he says, in the same way, all right, so consistent with the attitude that Peter's encouraged regarding the elders, that's, that's his point, that's, that's the same way reference that he's talking about here. You who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. I'll look at the submit bit in a second, but first up, when he says younger here, in all likelihood, he probably doesn't just again mean people who are younger than the elders, although we've got a couple of elders here that might mean that that does cover everyone successfully. What he probably means is those who are not elders. So this is not meant to be necessarily an age thing, first and foremost. It's more meant to be those who are in this position of responsibility and all those who aren't. It's more of a descriptive and poetic parallel as opposed to introducing this category of there are some who are elders and there are some who are youngers. There are some who are elders who have been distinctly put into that role, and then here it seems like he's talking to everybody else. Sometimes people try to make this in, well, you know, into a really hard age thing, but that, that's not what I think is going on here. And so the instruction that he gives to those who are not elders, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, this is the fourth time, isn't it, that we've seen this idea of submission come up in this passage. Right, we, we looked at them all together a, a few weeks back uh, in this little sort of second half of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3, where we see that there's these three types of submission to three different groups of people that Peter encouraged. Now, to everyone, he said, submit yourselves to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human authority. To slaves, he said, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. And to wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. If this stuff kind of uh, just freaks you out or you weren't here for that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. It's really important that we understand that stuff well. We saw how in each of those different contexts, there's specific and good reasons for why Peter encourages it the way that he does. And also, we saw that in each of those instances, there seems to be a suggestion that those authorities that Peter is asking people to submit to are not necessarily just and good. 
In fact, Peter's assumption seems to be in each of those instances that they are going to be unjust in the authority that they use and exercise. And that is actually distinct and different from the exhortation that Peter is making here. In each of those three previous examples, like I said, there seems to be a sense of Peter encouraging Christians for the sake of Christ and the unjust suffering that he endured to be willing to submit to human authority, even if they're not great. But here, by starting with the elders and exhorting them in the role that they are to have, he's now not giving us a picture of how to make it work in a difficult situation. He's rather putting forward the good situation that we're meant to be striving for. And so he starts by saying, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. That's the positive responsibility of the elders. Do it not begrudgingly, but willingly. Do it not for money, but with a desire to serve. Not in the place of Jesus, but as an example of him. And as those elders are fulfilling that responsibility, as they are walking in that, you who are younger submit to Now, again, as we've talked about before, submission is not this word that we can sort of dodge responsibility for by by weakening its meaning. It really does mean to put yourself under somebody else. It doesn't mean the same thing as obey, but often in a different context, there's elements of obedience. In fact, uh, in the church here, when it comes to our duties of membership, we even ask that all respect and reverence and obedience be given to the elders here, not because... We're looking to dominate and control your lives or lord it over you or to get stuff for ourselves, but because we read scripture when we recognize that just as we have a responsibility to you, you guys have a responsibility to us. I always find it really interesting. Uh, I think some preachers, when they have to talk on these passages, they get really uncomfortable about talking to people about submitting to them and that sort of stuff. But I've kind of moved past that, and I'll tell you why. It's because just like I recognize that there is a responsibility given to you guys to be respectful and to follow our lead as we seek to follow Christ, there's a responsibility put on me to do each of these things, and the same with all of our elders here at Living Church. I want to encourage you and exhort you to submit and follow our leadership, and at the same time, in just a second, we're going to see that all of us need to be humble in this. But it's because this is the good picture that Scripture puts forward as far as what the church is to look like. There are elders who have been put in place, qualified people who are responsible for leading God's flock, watching over them. We see in other places teaching and guarding doctrine and all this sort of different stuff. And that it's for the good of everyone if as they seek to do that well, that that we have this attitude of, yeah, and we're going to follow them. And this is the thing, guys. I'm still a person under authority myself. When I go to the state assembly, I don't get my way in all things. We, we come together as a group to, to work out God's wisdom together. I'm responsible to the presbytery. I'm responsible to the assembly. It's not like any of us ever get to a point where we're outside of responsibility to others. But it's the truth. of This is the good picture that Scripture puts forward too. But again, and I know some of you might still be a little bit nervous about this sort of idea, we need to see this in light of the instructions that he gives next because this is very much a part of it. So he speaks to elders and youngers specifically, and then he gives instructions to everyone. So all of you, elders and youngers, 
All right? This is not just for the elders. It's not just for the youngers. It's, it's everyone. Remember this. I've just said elders, youngers act in this way, but all of you, okay, the elders and those who are younger, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. It's amazing how when you start looking for it, when the apostles put forward a picture of a relationship that's marked by somebody in a position of responsibility, authority, and somebody in a position of submission, how often it's in the context of one another responsibilities also. So in Ephesians, when it talks about wives submitting to husbands, it also speaks there about submit to one another. There's this mutual submission element in which this asymmetrical submission takes place. And we see it again here that even though he's just given responsibility to elders and he's encouraged the youngers, everybody else, to submit to them, he then immediately goes on to say, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. The elders are to walk out that stuff that he's just encouraged them to do so in humility. Everybody here is to follow the lead of the elders in all humility. That's the picture that's being painted there. Because, sorry, and I should say as well, this this is something that we have to actively have to do, right? Just like we have to actively clothe ourselves with the same attitude of Christ as a willingness to suffer, so too we all have to clothe ourselves. We have to actively place ourselves in a place of humility. It's not always our starting point, right? Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. It's a quote from the Old Testament. If you look it up, it's Proverbs 3.34. If you look it up in your Bibles, it won't match up the wording exactly. That's because he's quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament. That explains why it doesn't match up uh, entirely there. But he's drawing on this Old Testament wisdom to try and make this point as to why they should be humbling themselves. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, Humble yourselves, therefore. What does that mean? It means to to be willing to lose status or privilege or or simply being unpretentious. Don't be haughty and proud and that sort of stuff. Most specifically, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Now, that's a really interesting phrasing. He could have said, be humble before God. He He could have said, be humble knowing God. There's all sorts of different ways that he could have described this. But he says, be humble, all of you, under God's mighty hand. He's spoken to elders and their responsibility to lead and watch over and be overseers. He's spoken to the rest of the Christians there and said to them, submit. And yet to everyone, he says, be humble under God's mighty hand. Now, it's not just a question of his lordship. I think that there's definitely an idea here of God is in control of all things. And our response is to accept his will in humility. But again, Peter again and again keeps looking forward that God may lift us up in due time. He never stops. He's always looking forward to that heavenly future, the return of Christ, the glory that is to come. And perhaps knowing that when we lay down our pride, when we walk in humility, that that increases our sense of vulnerability and our sense of being at risk because I've entrusted myself to another, whether it's God or human leadership, he says, cast all your anxiety 
on him because he cares for you. That when we walk humbly before God, we don't walk humbly before a tyrant. We don't walk humbly before some of the human authorities that existed in Peter's time who might not be considered trustworthy. He calls us to submit to them in a sacrificial way like Christ does. But to God, he says, you can cast your anxieties before him because he cares for you. This is the one that we're to be humble before. So there's a link there between that recognition that God's in control and our ability to cast our anxieties onto him. He then goes forward and starts to shift focus here a little bit. He says next, be alert and of sober mind. We've seen him use this phrase in multiple sort of ways. Sometimes the vocab changes just a little bit, but it's this basic idea of be self-controlled, watchful, and awake. The last time that he exhorted us to do this, he said that to be mindful of the fact that all, the end of all things is near. That was the motivating force. Be sober-minded, be watchful, because the end of all things is near. This time he says to these guys that he's writing to, be alert and of sober mind, because, that's kind of implied there, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, here's my assumption. Uh, if you are visiting here with us and we start talking about the devil, you're like, oh my gosh, church is absolutely as weird as I thought it was going to be. Uh, and if you've been in church for a little while and we start talking about the devil, you might be thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, I wish I didn't bring my friend today. This is so embarrassing. But here's the funny thing, right? Scripture is really unabashedly open about talking about the devil. It's a really contemporary problem to be concerned about the devil. Now, here's the thing. That's not the picture of the devil that we get in Scripture. This is why it gets weird and it gets awkward, right? Because over time, uh, this dude with like the pitchfork and the wings and the pointy ears and all that sort of stuff, that, that's the image of the devil that's been put forward. That's nowhere in Scripture. All right, that was... Uh, Artists in the medieval times sort of started to you know, try and fear people into obedience in lots of different contexts and that sort of stuff that started to develop all these tropes regarding what the devil looks like. But let me just read through a bunch of scriptures here because I need you guys to recognize the seriousness of the devil if you're going to hear Peter's words well here. So in the Gospels, it says there in Luke, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. The devil is not a myth. He's not make-believe in scriptures. He's a real historical character that acts and interacts with Jesus. Jesus taught to those Pharisees that were rejecting him, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Jesus treats the devil like a real historical figure. He's not myth. He's not make-believe. He's a character that Jesus says, no, this guy is real. He's active. And actually, if you don't believe in me, you belong to him. Again, at the end of John's gospel, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. The devil is living and active amongst those who don't believe and trust in the Lord. In Ephesians, Paul writes, In your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Paul also saw this sense in which the devil was seeking to come against those who believe and trust in Jesus. And so he says just a little bit later, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
And finally, the writer of Hebrews says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, that's Jesus, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. I want to go through all that because I don't want you guys to get dismissive of this part. And I know that some of you are actually quite interested in this because, uh, again, spoiler, uh, one of the top responses to our, to our uh, you know, voting poll on what you guys want to preach on, what you want us to preach on in term four was, what about spiritual warfare? What, what is this? And so we're going to spend a lot more time talking about that in term four. But for now, to see this. This enemy that we have... This one who Jesus conversed with, this one who has the power of death, this one who has been a liar from the beginning, a murderer, an active living figure in Scripture, it says that he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I think the lion imagery is meant to play against some of the flock and sheep imagery that we've already seen. And to this, Peter says, given that this is the reality that you are in, resist him. Set yourself against him. Oppose him. That's the idea that's going there. Standing firm in the faith because you know that, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. He's spoken a lot about suffering at the hands of human authorities, but he is not blind to the fact that there is a spiritual reality behind this also, And so he wants people to understand that you need to resist and stand firm in your sufferings because you're not alone and suffering is normal for all believers. This is the idea that's actually at work here. Now we're going to come back and think about a little bit more about what that looks like for us. But for now, just to help me, let me keep moving here. It says, The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I'll take this all together. Basically, the picture that he's painting here for us is, again, a forward-looking one. For those outside of Christ, there are evil desires and disobedience. If you're in Christ, the picture he's painted is that you have a desire for the will of God, and you are obedient to him. And I've accidentally left a slide in, so everyone close your eyes. I don't want you to see this one just yet. Good. Great job. But now that our roaring lion is defeated in Christ, there's going to be a time that comes when that devil is defeated. We're going to go from not just having the desire for the will of God and seeking to live in obedience, but we are restored fully in glory, strong, firm, and steadfast. That's part of the future vision that we are to have for ourselves. And so Peter says, To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Now again, I don't want to dismiss any part of Scripture here, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to work through this Briefly make a couple of quick observations with these final greetings. Peter says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Again, stand fast in it. Hold firm in what I've been teaching you. She who was in Babylon, who is the she, maybe Peter's wife, maybe the Christian community in Rome that he's speaking about metaphorically. Babylon, sorry, I should say, is a metaphor for Rome. Everyone pretty much agrees on that. She who was in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greeting, as done my son Mark, probably John Mark that some of you will have seen in the book of Acts uh, and know him also. Greet one another with a kiss of love. I expect to see more of that. First time I met this uh, this one uh, guy that I knew, Australian Egyptian, so... Uh, just like like Australian-born Chinese, he was very sort of Australian-born Egyptian. Um, but I can I can still feel the scruffy beard on the kisses he would give me each week at church. Uh, 
So it makes a mark. He says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. All right, so let's think just in our last little bit here together uh, about what we're to take away from it. There's, there's a fair bit, but I'm going to try and work through it uh, efficiently and quickly here for you. First up, we've seen that elders are to shepherd the, God, the flock God has given to them, and the people are to submit to them. So if we talked about elders are to watch over and shepherd God's people, entrusted to them willingly to serve others and setting an example of Christ, and those under particular elder shepherding should submit to them. Now, this is strong language that we're uncomfortable with in our contemporary times. Because we have real reason in our contemporary culture, especially when it comes to church, to question whether church leadership is always actually going to be working for our good and actually matching up with that description that we see there. And so we need to do this mindfully and wisely. And, and let me just say this as your elder, as an under-shepherd of the Lord here. We as an eldership are very open to hearing from you and welcome your challenge to us if you see us behaving in a manner that does not line up with this. Like, it goes on here to talk about how all of us in humility are to relate to one another, be humble towards one another. A really important part of this, as we seek to exercise the responsibility that God has given to us that's been briefly described in this passage, we want to be humble before you. That's why when we do stuff like church life, we want to share with you what we're doing so we can hear from you and get your thoughts on this. We have responsibility to be planning, to be thinking ahead, to be giving ourselves and our, and our energy and our effort to thinking about what it looks to, to guard and, and watch over the flock and to teach well and how we do things and all this sort of stuff. But we would be foolish, prideful, if we thought that we could do that without input from you or without any need to consider or think about you guys or with some sort of assumption that we know it all. It's not the spirit that we want to be moving in. It's not the sort of leadership that we want to be growing here. And so I want to encourage you guys that as we seek to be open and engage with you, that even part of your submission to us is to take that seriously and be willing to talk to us. I've got somebody who's organized a meeting with me this week to talk about some stuff, some possible things that I might need to hear because they know that somebody hasn't loved everything that we've been doing. And you know what? That's great. That's totally okay. And that's an important part of what this actually looks like. If we are going to be the sort of elders who do so willingly to serve others and set an example of Christ, that includes hearing from you guys, being humble enough to listen. It might also mean that we challenge back and we say, well, actually, I'm not sure if that really is applicable here. It's going to be a conversation. But at the same time, this is what it looks like. This is the good picture that gets put before us about what church looks like and how leadership relates to one another. And in the same way, if you see us in sin, something more serious than just like you disagree and all that sort of stuff, then again, I think part of the responsibility of being the family of God and being to, is to be willing to challenge one another, and then it's on us to be finding ways to humbly listen to that and engage with it well. All right, so I just want to say that briefly, paint a brief little picture, lots more conversation than we can be had. And it should be noted that, again, like I said, this is one of the duties of membership, uh, but I'll leave it there for now, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep moving and look on some other stuff. 
The next point is that all people are to humble themselves under God's mighty hand. I think that this looks like two different things for those of us who are here this morning, depending on where we are with Christ. For those who are in Christ, in humility, we accept that God is in control, and so we can cast our anxieties on Him. We serve humbly. We live in humility towards one another. We seek to listen to each other, to hear from one another. But the bigger idea here that I think is at work is he talks about being in humility to one another under God's mighty hand. Be humble to one another while being humble under God's mighty hand. He's in control. All things that are happening are happening in accordance with the Lord's plans. And that can be hard especially when we go through painful things. And this is what I was talking about, about how as we look at these concluding verses, we can't forget about everything that he's taught us earlier. Placing ourselves under God's mighty hand at times means expecting and enduring and persisting through suffering and pain and difficulty. And we're to be humble towards one another in the midst of that as we seek to live under God's sovereignty. Because I don't know about you guys, but, but sometimes the challenge is, as we endure difficulty and suffering, to start to get an attitude of nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody knows how hard it is for me. My suffering starts to take precedence because that's the thing that I've experienced. But as we all humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, we all need to be humble in recognizing that we all have challenges, we all have difficulties, we all have things that we're experiencing and living through and enduring in this world. And so corporately and together, we need to accept responsibility to humble ourselves before him and cast our anxieties on the one who cares for us. It's a corporate project. And then firmly, oh, sorry, and then for those who are not currently trusting in Christ, this is not what this passage says directly, but I think that the implied call here is that if everyone, all of us, are to humbly submit ourselves before God, then the call is that if you haven't yet done that, if you're still living a life where you're rejecting God, to at least after hearing this morning to reconsider and think, okay, what does, it, what does it look like to submit to God? Why would I do this? Now, in a nutshell, it's because Jesus Christ has died for us and given his life for us in order to set us free from sin and death and to give us eternal life. That's the reason that we would confess our sin and trust in him. But I understand that we haven't focused on that a lot this morning, but I wanted to be mindful of anyone who is visiting that if you're interested in this, to talk to us a little bit more. And then finally, resist the devil and stand firm in the faith. And I just want to spend just a little bit of your time, so I beg your indulgence to go a little bit longer. Resist the devil and stand firm in the faith. Like it says earlier, resist him. Set yourself against him. Oppose him. We talked about what it looks like to be on the outside. When you're inside of Christ, you resist the devil. You stand firm in the faith. There's a roaring lion seeking to devour us. But here's the wrong image to get here. The devil, the enemy, that roaring, prowling lion who was a real historical figure, we are not meant to be fighting against him. All right? Sometimes Christians get a little bit carried away in this and think that when it's a resist the devil and all that sort of stuff, then somehow we've got to take the fight to him. But that's not really the picture that's being given here. We'll talk about what the positive picture is here in just a moment. But I also really want to point out that sometimes this language gets misused to not just target a spiritual force, but human forces also. So let me give you two different examples from each end of the political spectrum. 
depending on which sort of circles you're moving in. Sometimes people might see demonic forces operating in one part of culture and think in order to resist the devil, we have to fight against those people who are clearly under the devil's influence. And you can have one side of politics where that might be the way that you think of things, or it could be the other side. And things that we need to recognize that that we can all sort of shift into this where we can start to associate certain people with a demonic movement or a demonic force and think we have to fight against those people, but that's not really what's being spoken about here. Resisting the devil is not turning flesh and blood enemies into our opponent. In fact, elsewhere it says really clearly that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against the dark forces. But even then... It's not our fight to win. Who is the one who ultimately defeats the devil? Jesus. So it's Jesus' fight to defeat him. So what it looks like for us to resist and stand firm is to stay in Christ with a posture of resistance where I will defend myself against his attacks. I will stand firm in the faith. I will stay here in Christ, in the grace that he has given me. I will confess these truths. I will make sure that I am grounded in the safety that Christ offers to me. But I'm not going to get any foolish notions about going out there and you know, starting to, to, to fight against the world and all that sort of stuff. That's, that's not what this is encouraging us to. Now, like I said, I knew that we were going to be working through a lot of stuff here. I appreciate that it's a fair bit for you guys to, to take in, so I hope that we can meditate and reflect on this stuff well. And can I just say to finish up with like on a broader note, I really hope that this is a letter that you guys come back to again and again. It's given us such a great framework for what it looks like to experience suffering in this world, how we can respond to it well, how we can expect it, and how we can seek to honor Christ and live like him in the midst of it. And so may this be a book that you guys return to again and again. And as we come up now to worship the Lord and give him the praise that we should. Uh, Let's do so with that heart that we've seen here to follow in Christ's footsteps in all that we do. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us. Thank you, Father, for the kindness that you've shown to us in bringing us into your family. Knowing your mercy and your love for us, knowing the care that you have for us. We pray, Father, that you'd be with the elders at our church here, that, Lord, we'd be able to lead and guide and shepherd and oversee the flock that you've entrusted to us well. We pray, Father, for all of us here that we'd be willing to submit to those that you have placed in responsibility for us and that we would lovingly seek to submit and obey them. We pray, Father, that all of us would walk in a spirit of humility towards one another, but also under God's mighty hand. And we pray that we would resist the devil and stand firm confessing the faith until you return to lift us up in glory in due time. And we thank you for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.